pronouncing my sentiment. <laughs> oh, I'm borrow that for a second, or for a few seconds. All right, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And as you can see, I'm not using the projector this morning. For a couple reasons. Probably the biggest reason, I just didn't have time to make new slides. So, anyway. I was getting worried yesterday because this hasn't been a good week as far as having time to study and stuff. It just very hectic week, and um, <laughs> I asked Tim one time yesterday afternoon what time it was. He said, oh, it's 4.30, and then uh, time flies, you know, and anyway, so then I got in my van last evening to start it, actually to move it so the electrician could move out of the way, or leave anyway, and uh, turn it on, and the clock said 8.06. I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway, because uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, all right, I needed a lot more time uh, yesterday, because uh, this is arguably probably what passage we're going to start looking at this morning, probably one of the hardest most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews, but uh, anyway, so uh, we're not actually, we'll probably be on this particular passage today and next time as well, because um, it's, it's, it's the third warning passage, right? But it's, it's a long passage anyway, really long passage, so, uh, and it's one of those that um, uh, we need to be, look at it carefully, because there's... Uh, uh, like the last warning passage, there's a lot of misunderstandings about it, um, and so we want to be a little careful in looking at it. But what I want to do this morning, we're going to take just a few minutes and get some highlight reviews, okay, review of some of the highlights, and then um, we'll read the passage of Scripture, then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into looking at the passage, all right? And like I said, we're, we'll basically already planning not but to just to look at a certain part of it but anyway so the book of Hebrews three P's three key words that again just kind of logically go through if you think of these you can think of really the book of Hebrews what are those three words Person, priesthood, and principle, but which, what is the principle? We haven't looked at that yet, but we've mentioned what that is, because that might seem a little weird just using that word, but um, it's the principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? That's, that's the whole idea. Um, but the person of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, which is what the majority of the book of Hebrews deals with as far as the number of chapters, content, and so on. And that's where we're starting at or started last week. And then the principle at, uh, toward the second half of chapter 10, we pick up in that. All right. So thinking of, of 
We've already talked about, although we could have spent more time with it, but for various reasons we didn't, but the person of Christ. There's three words that we could use under that that gives us the basic presentation of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, uh, and 4, I guess you would say, in talking about the person of Christ, all right? His superior, he's superior in his person because of three things that are presented in Hebrews, three ideas. What are those? His deity, all right? And that's where it begins, and, and any, any presentation of the person of Christ in the New Testament really begins with that. John chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 2, other places. I mean, the fact that he's God, that's foundational to everything, all right? And then, then it moves on to what? His deity, his humanity, all right? And his humanity, he is a man. He's, he's not just, you know, a lot of people have the idea that, it, that it's, you know, God the Son just put on a human body. No, it was more than just a physical robe, so to speak. He took on humanity. He became a man. That's hard to understand, perhaps. And by the way, that's why it seems a lot of different religious groups reject that idea because it, it's hard to fathom it. It's hard to reason it out. And just because we can't reason it out, again, doesn't make it not true. All right? we've, we've stated this numerous times, but when you're thinking about God, if we could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be much of a God. I mean, he's, he's way beyond us. Now, he tells us a lot of things about himself so that we can know him and know about him, but a lot of those things we, we can't really understand because of our human limitations. And so we have to believe those by faith. We trust what he says about himself, right? And so not only is Christ, the person of Christ, not only is he superior because he's God and then secondly, because he's human, but his humanity is different in the sense that he's perfect, okay? And remember how that's the end of that point was that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, all right? But then there's a third uh, word there that's, uh, that we use to describe, and mostly of chapter 3, uh, it's presented, and, and then the warning passage included in chapter 3 and 4, but... That word was what? Deity, humanity, and faithfulness. His faithfulness. That's another aspect of looking at who he is as to why he is superior. Because he is faithful. I mean, uh, there's so many things about that, but he's faithful. Him alone. All right? He stands alone in his faithfulness compared to every other human being great or not so great, all right, he is the only one that is 100% faithful and trustworthy and so on. Now, thankfully, there are a lot of other people that we can trust and we, we put our confidence in and, and rely on and trust in, but only he is 100% faithful, all right? So we, we, we saw that talking about the person of Christ, then, then the, the book moves into the discussion, presentation of his priesthood, the fact uh, of his priestly work, and of course Hebrews goes into more detail on that than any other book in the Bible, uh, but his priesthood, and, and last week we looked at the passage, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 5, that basically just kind of give a synopsis, a, a brief summary, okay, about priesthood and then showing how Christ 
He, met, he, met, he meets the criteria that was set in the Old Testament for a priest. And, of course, he goes beyond that, as we shall see. Um, but now, uh, before getting into discussing the four main aspects of his priesthood that will come in chapters 7 through 10, his, his source, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. And then his, uh, what's next, his, his script, he's a priest after the new covenant, not an old covenant. And then his sanctuary, he ministered in the real tabernacle, which is in heaven, not the earthly tabernacle that Moses and the children of Israel uh, you know, set up. And it was a pattern of things that were in heaven, but it wasn't the heavenly tabernacle. All right? And then lastly, in chapter 10, first half of chapter 10, uh, the sacrifice of his priesthood is what's focused on there. And that's, that just puts the, if you want to say, the nail in the coffin about his priesthood uh, and, and all that's involved in it, all right? But before, after, after kind of giving this synopsis and uh, introducing the matter, it's like the, the, the writer, get it out here, pauses again and issues another warning. Right, with this, this will be the third of the five warnings. There's one we'll see in chapter 10 yet, and then one in chapter 12 as well. But this is the third of those warnings, and this is probably the longest warning passage uh, in the book of Hebrews. I, I didn't necessarily count the verses on all the others, but I would say this is probably the longest because it, uh, the, this particular warning goes from verse uh, 11 in chapter 5, where we had left off, through the end of chapter 6. So there's 20 verses in chapter 6 and 4 here, so 24 verses in this particular warning passage. So it is, it's a lengthy passage, okay? And it is probably the, I would, I would venture to say, probably the most misunderstood portion in the book of Hebrews, okay? So that's, again, why we want to take a little bit of uh, time and look at it carefully here. But remember some of the things, before we even get into it, that we, we, that we talked about with the previous warning passage, all right, that, uh, uh, pr- you know, just principles that go across the board in, in understanding the Bible, all right? One is, context is extremely important, all right? In fact, as some say, context is everything. I mean, everything must be taken, every, every statement in the Bible, you know, is, is in a context, all right? And so, uh, sure, there are principles that are universal for myriads of applications here and there, but, but it, they do have a context still, all right? And everything has a context. That is extremely, extremely important. And we're going to focus a little bit more on that context of this in just a second. But then also remember that difficult passages in the Bible... We, we need to be careful as we look at them and not isolate them, again, because they're part of the Bible. They're part of a, a, an immediate context. They're part of a broader context. They're part of the context of the whole Bible. So in some way or another, all of the Bible, all of God's Word has something to shed on that individual passage to help us understand what God's saying, okay? In other words... When we look at passages in the Bible that seem difficult to understand, unclear passages perhaps we would say, all right, we need to understand those in the light of clear teachings of the Bible because some obscure thing is not going to you know, dethrone the solid clear truth of the Bible that's taught throughout. 
All right? Obviously, the other way is we understand, we need to look at and understand these passages in light of the clear teaching of the Bible. All right? And when it comes to the matter of the security of the believer or eternal salvation, however you want to word it, all right? Uh, salvation, according to the Bible, is something that when a person is saved by God, they're saved forever. And in these passages in the book of Hebrews, let me just say it this way, that a person being in danger of losing their salvation is never the question in these passages. The question is always, is a person really saved? All right? Remember the last warning? All right? The danger of unbelief, right? A person can miss the rest that's in Christ because of unbelief. It's not that they'll lose their rest. They never get there. They never have the rest. That's the warning that we saw previously. All right, so in this passage, as we read it together, you're going to see some verses come up, again, that, that people wonder about. And, and uh, okay, does that mean that a person who's saved can lose their salvation or something of that sort? All right, uh, however they want to word it. That's not, just, again, keep all this in mind as we read it. This does have a context and I want to point that out to you again as we, as we look at this. So here's, here's what i like to do this morning. I'm going to read one verse, um, uh, verse 10 of chapter 5, and then I'm going to ask you all to read, whoever wants to participate in that. I'll ask Pastor Brinker to start it in verse 11 of chapter 5. But we already looked at verse 10 of chapter 5, I know, but I want to read it because, again, context, right? Context. All right, so I'll read verse 10, then we'll, we'll go to Pastor Brinker on verse 11, and then you all just keep reading and I'll stay out of that part, all right? So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10 says, Called of God and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when... Uh, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are, that are of full age, even those who by reason of use having their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. <coughs> if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth for the earth which drinketh in the rain uh, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. 
But beloved, we are persuaded to better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do, do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made prom for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. Whether the forerunners for us entered even Jesus, made in high priest, wherever after the order of Melchizedek. All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just pray that you'd help us this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. I pray that um, you'd help me to be able to present it faithfully to you, to you and your word, your meaning, and uh, help us to uh, see the, the proper understanding of this passage. Um, and Lord, I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts and be reminded again of the seriousness of salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake we pray, amen. All right, remember the previous two warnings, all right? The first one was a very short passage, first four verses of chapter two, which basically the warning was, all right, if the word that was spoken by angels, it says, so ministers in the Old Testament time, all right, things associated with that, uh, if, if disregarding God's word, disobeying God's word in that economy was serious and punished seriously, the, the writer of Hebrews then asks, how much you know, more serious, I'm paraphrasing, is it to neglect the word spoken by Christ and brought and given by Christ in this New Testament time? Serious thing, all right? The second warning was a warning about being careful, being diligent so we, you know, we're not in unbelief, so we're not missing God's rest that he has in Christ. The third warning um, is really the idea of be careful and pay attention in hearing so we don't miss salvation. And we'll explain that as we go on here. But context, said context is everything. Let me point out to you, you read this, but let me point out to you a couple things. All right, verse 10 that I read before you all read says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When it says called of God, it's talking about Christ, okay? But called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then it gets into this warning passage. Then as the warning passage ends, 
verse 20. I forget who read that verse just a minute ago, but notice what verse 20 of chapter 6 says. And I want you to tell me what the similarity here is, all right? Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then actually verse 1 of chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, okay? And then chapter 7 is all about that. But what, what do you see as on the begin, you know, what went before it and then what picks up after it, and this is inserted in between, what's the theme on either end there? Melchizedek, all right? Now, is that a popular biblical theme that everybody hears about every day? No, all right? And that's part of his point as he gets into this. So verse 11, keep that in mind as you, as you start thinking about this, all right? Of whom? Verse 11 of chapter 5. And, and my goal this morning is, is we'll look at verse 11 of 5 down through verse 3 of chapter 6, okay? And then the rest of it next time. That's the goal, all right? So, of whom? Whom is a pronoun standing for something? Who, who is the whom referring to here? Melchizedek, all right? That, that's, that's pretty straightforward, all right? So, keep that in mind. Everything now in this warning hinges on, okay, he's been talking about Melchizedek, and he's going to be elaborating a lot more on Melchizedek, but he stops to kind of issue this warning, okay? And there's two aspects of this warning. One, one typically it's, it's, it's stated this way, that there's a warning about immaturity and a warning about apostasy. Now, both ideas are here, and I believe that they both go together. I don't think they're two separate issues here because the one is leading to the other in the context of this warning, okay? But he says, of whom? Of Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. Now think about that for a second, what he just said right there, all right? And then he says, seeing you are dull of hearing, all right? So he's saying, I have a lot of things I need to say about Melchizedek, but that's hard to do for two reasons. Because these are, he says, they're hard to be uttered. And what he's saying is, this is a difficult subject. And then secondly, he says, because they are dull of hearing. So there's two things involved in this that make it a difficult subject, and he's pausing to, issue, to, to address that. Okay? The first one is, we'll say, all right, it's a difficult subject. You remember... 2 Peter chapter 3, let me just go there real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, says that Peter's writing here, right? And he says, an account that the long-suffering... Now, keep in mind, Peter's epistles are written to strangers, all right, which really is Jews, all right, but they were believers, generally speaking, but Jews that were scattered about, and he names five regions, okay? But it says, an account, verse 15 of chapter 3, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, also, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. All right? So keep that in mind. Peter's saying, even... That some of the things Paul wrote about are hard to understand. That's Peter, the Apostle Peter. Okay? Um, so not just some, you know, 
somebody who doesn't who does hasn't had any exposure to the word of God and so on, but this is the apostle Peter. He's saying, you know what? Paul wrote about some things that are pretty hard to understand. That's Peter saying that. All right? And the writer of Hebrews, you know, some some think, okay, that that are that are uh, on the bandwagon saying Paul was the writer of Hebrews, which he may have been, okay? And I have no reason to doubt that he wasn't, okay? Other than the book doesn't say that he is. And it, it, in, in some ways, to me, it's logical that if he did write it, he didn't claim it's, it's, it's anonymous in that sense because the Jews didn't like Paul, typically, right? They considered him a traitor. But... Those that were saved, they would have a different view of him. But, but in writing Hebrews, it's more than just truly saved people that are being addressed. And these warning passages make that clear. All right? um, but the point being, he says, I need to write about Melchizedek, but it's a difficult subject. And there's another factor in this. He's saying to these people... And it doesn't mean everybody that, that read, you know, Hebrews was, was in this category, but a lot apparently were. He said, you're dull of hearing. That's an interesting term. What does that mean when it says you're dull of hearing? Does that mean, you know, it's like, huh, what did you say? I can't hear you, that kind of an idea. My wife says I do that a lot. But um, if you look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 6, notice there it says that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see the word slothful there? It's the exact same word translated dull in our verse, in verse 11. Really, the word means lazy. He says, I got a lot of things to write, but it's a difficult subject, and you're lazy in your hearing, is literally what he's saying. So in other words... This matter that he's wanting to address needs some care and some diligence in order to be able to write about it and hear it, is what he's saying, all right? So in other words, if somebody said that was talking to you, all right, if Pastor Brinker gets up in the morning message and says, you know what, you're lazy hearers, would that get your attention? If it didn't, you'd really be a lazy hearer, right? I mean, you know. So it, in some ways, maybe it's a, it's a device, right, used to get your attention, wake you up, shake you, listen up. This is serious. Again, because everything is right, this is serious matter. And for some of the Jewish people that were involved in getting this and who hadn't been saved yet, they're kind of on the, on the cusp of, you know, they, 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 they're, in one way they're drawn to believe in Christ, but on the other hand, there's a lot of obstacles for them. There's, they would be facing ostracization from their, their families and, and so on. They, you know, I mean, it, it would be a difficult thing for a lot of people, all right? So, I mean, they're, they're, they're like close, but they're, you know, they're still a little ways away because they haven't made that commitment to Christ, okay? And so he's wanting to get their attention here. And he says, verse 12, for when the time for ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, 
even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you see here a comparison between what we might typically call immature and mature. All right? Now, I, I do believe there's a principle in this passage, and this is how this passage, at least in my limited experience and observation, how this passage is particularly predominantly presented, all right, that, you know, these people are being uh, um, chastised a little bit because they should have been more mature in Christ and they're not, all right? But I think this is not just that. This goes beyond, this is a matter of a comparison of subjects. We see that as we get into chapter 6, all right? Because notice, you'll see the phrase up in verse 12 of chapters 5 there, uh, the first principles of the oracles of God, the, the phrase the first principles, we're going to see that again down in, in chapter 6. It's the idea of the elementary things, okay, the things that were introduced first to be built upon is the idea, all right? Now keep that in mind as you look at verse uh, chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now the difference here is, in, in chapter 5, when he first said it, he said the first principles of the oracles of God. Now he says the first, uh, uh, leaving the principles, it's the same idea, the first elements of the doctrine of Christ. Now, a lot of people take this as meaning Christianity, but I don't believe that's the case here. All right? He's comparing Old Testament Judaism with New Testament Christianity. Now, the word Christ, what does the word Christ mean? I mean, it's part of the full title name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the word Christ itself means what? Means anointed. Now, keep this in mind. You'll not find the word Messiah in the New Testament, and you'll not find the word Christ in the Old Testament. And that's basically because of a difference of languages, all right? But the New Testament Christ is, you could say, the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah, all right? When the, when the Jews in the first century in that New Testament, when they heard Christ, the, the term Christ, Messiah, that's what they're thinking, Messiah of the Old Testament, all right? And so just for sake of thinking about this and keeping what I believe is the context here, Think, let, me, let me insert the word Messiah in place of Christ here, okay? Just again, to help us with understanding this. So, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah, all right? Let us go on under perfection, not laying again. Now, the foundation, then he mentions six things here. And again, my hands and my mouth don't coordinate, but six things, okay? I don't have six fingers on the hand anyway. <laughs> Uh, but he says, not laying again the foundation of, and six, six items listed, repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the, doctrine, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of the laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Okay? These six things. And again, I've heard this presented in the sense of, of likening these, these six things to... Uh, just kind of very elementary things involved in salvation and so on. That's not the case. These six things have to do with Judaism. They have, they're not at all talking about Christianity. They're talking about Judaism, all right? Let's look at them. 
right? So leaving, what he's saying is we need to leave behind. Remember who he's writing to, Hebrews, to exhort them of the seriousness of considering Christ and coming to faith in Christ, right? And so he's saying we got to come to the point where we leave behind what the old te- the foundation that the Old Testament laid of Messiah and we need to move on to all now that the New Testament has enlightened us about the Messiah. That's, that's really, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it there, but that's really the idea of what this is saying. All right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, lay, what he's saying, laying aside this foundation. All right? These six things are foundational elements that you see in the Old Testament that all pointed to the Messiah. All right? First of all, repentance from dead works. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement about that, but you clearly see in, throughout the Old Testament the idea of repentance. Now, what the dead works are here is what people would argue about, all right? Uh, but I believe it's talking about the, the Judaistic system. And they're now considered dead by God because Christ fulfilled them. There's no need of all those animal sacrifices and so on because Christ has come and he is the sacrifice that God has always accepted. The others were just pictures of him. They never really did anything. It was just a principle of faith in what God had said to do. All right? And God has always, he's never looked at a lamb as satisfying to him. He's always looked at Christ as being the satisfactory sacrifice. And the others were just pictures and and foreshadows and so on. But this repentance from dead works, all right, and of faith toward God. Was faith toward God required in the Old Testament? It's not a trick question. Yes. But you know what? You'll never see the phrase faith in Christ in the Old Testament. Every time you see it in the Old Testament, it's faith in God. In fact, let me just give you one example here. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And, I, and, and there's reason for this, okay? Can't get my fingers to work here, right? Genesis 15. You're familiar with the passage, but I just want to point one detail out, all right, that sometimes maybe again we overlook. All right, in the, in the context, this is Abraham, or he's still Abram at this point till chapter 17, but this is Abraham. In fact, this passage is referred to in Romans chapter 4, all right? It's quoted in Romans chapter 4, which is a passage that's dealing with justification by faith, all right? Now, it specifies, it uses this as an illustration, even David as an illustration, but then it goes on in chapter 4 of Romans to specify faith in Christ, okay? But notice what verse 6 of chapter 15 in Genesis says, and he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now there it says in the Lord. In Romans chapter 4 when he quotes it, he says, and what saith the scripture? Even that Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. All right? In other words, there's a difference in faith in God and faith in Christ. And the thing being, is faith in God required of us? Yes, but we have a more specific requirement. And that is because we have, we have the completed revelation for one thing, all right? And, and, and 
Christ has come. He's done it. He's fulfilled it. And we are required to believe that. In the Old Testament, he hadn't come. All right? And some argue that, you know, that Abraham had faith in Christ looking ahead. Well, maybe in a way, but I don't know that Abraham knew about Christ. Okay? And, and I'm not going to try to get into splitting all the things. But the point is, Abraham believed what God had showed him and told him. But it was a more general idea than faith specifically in Christ and in his shed blood. All right? In, in time, as God has revealed things, all right, they don't, you know, in other words, uh, you know, like the, the idea of dispensations and, and periods, you know, God has revealed things to man and he's tested man based on what he's revealed up to that point. He added more, he added more, and it doesn't do away with what he had already said, but it just builds on it. And it's kind, of like, it's kind of like building a house in a way, all right? You dig a hole in the ground, all right? But there's no house there. You put a foundation in, and that foundation is essential to the house, right? But there's still not a house. That foundation is not a house. And as a framing carpenter, I've done a lot of framing, I might argue the frame is the house. It really is. Everything else just kind of beautifies it and makes it more comfortable. But the frame's the house. But my point being is, you know, you're, you're putting more on there and more on there and more on there and more on there. Till the end, you have this finished product. And that's kind of the way it is of what God's done over time in giving revelation to man, revealing truth to man and what he requires. All right? We... Our, our faith, God requires a more specific faith, I believe, of us than he required of the Old Testament people. We have more information. We have, and Christ has come, and that's what part of the whole essence of what Hebrews is about. Christ has come and fulfilled that. We don't need to stay here. We don't need to stay in the foundation. We have the whole house. You know, that's, that's the idea here. What he's talking about with these, these foundational matters, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, all right? I, we've mentioned those, time is flying, I've got to press on so I can get to verse 3 here, all right? And then the next one, of doctrines of baptisms, and this is one that throws a lot of people off because they're thinking, okay, yeah, this is talking about Christianity. This is not talking about Christianity. This is not talking about scriptural, you know, believer's baptism. That's not what this is talking about. In fact... You can get a strong concordance look. This is a different word than any word that's ever associated with scriptural baptism in the New Testament. It's a similar word, but it's a different word. In fact, this word only occurs four times in the New Testament. Let's look at those real quick because they're in two different passages, all right? Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And I didn't write down the specific verses, so give me a second to look at them. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is the one speaking. He uses the, the, the word here twice in this passage. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. Mark 7, 5, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, and, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied, excuse me, of you hypocrites, 
As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. In verse 8, the word washing, that's the same word that we see translated baptism in our passage in Hebrews. All right, keep on reading. He says, And then full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. And the, the second one's not in that passage. Um, I don't think I wrote it down. That's shame on me. But anyway, the word washing in Hebrews in our passage, all right, go, go to Hebrews chapter 9 real quick. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll see it four times. It's twice in Mark. And then once in the passage, Hebrews 6, that we're in, and then once in Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without, God, uh, without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's not it either. I got something else on my mind. Sorry. Um, anyway, my bad. I'll... I'll uh, Time's flying, so I'll get back to it. I'll try it next time. I'll, I'll point out the right passages to you. I apologize. I should have, uh, I should have wrote them down. But um, actually, it's in verse 10 of chapter 9, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That's it. All right? So, it's, it's twice in Mark. I thought they were both in those first few verses of chapter 7, but I guess I'm wrong on that. And then in, in Hebrews 6, um, 2, and Hebrews 9, 10. That word, here, it's translated baptisms, which, uh, again, but every other occurrence of it, the other three, is all washings. And the idea is talking about the ceremonial washings that were involved with uh, things in the Old Testament law. And then, of course, in Judaism, they, the, the traditions, the Torah, or, or the, uh, the Talmud, I guess it would be called, uh, the writings of all the rabbis that were added over the years, they, they, imply, they added a whole lot of other traditions that God never gave them. But there was a lot of washings. And in Mark 7, that's what Jesus is talking about, the, the washings that they added, which God didn't say anything about. There were some washings incorporated that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament law. But it's, it's a matter of a ceremonial type washing and generally dealt with a person's hands, okay? Or it could deal with washing of instruments and so on. But it's not like being submersed in water. When the priests in the tabernacle setting, they had to wash in the laver, but they didn't climb in the laver, you know, and get completely submersed, take a bath that way. They washed ceremonially in the laver, all right? Again, that was part of the whole system of, of cleansing and, and things of that sort. And, but that's, what, that's the idea of what it's talking about here in Hebrews 6, too, of the doctrines of washings. 
and of laying on of hands. When sacrifices were brought, in fact, I, I think I got the right passage here again. The book of Leviticus, the first five chapters lay out <clears throat> the details for the five main sacrifices. Um, in, um, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 1, Verse 4, this is under the details of what was called the burnt offering, all right? It says in verse 4, he, that's uh, the one bringing the sacrifice, he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So when a person brought that offering, they would present it to the priest at the door of the tabernacle, and they would have to lay their hands on it. And the idea is they were making an identification, it's kind of like a confession in a way, but they were identifying, and God said in doing so, as they came in faith, all right, following what God said about things, they're trusting God, that's the, uh, the thing, but they were, their sin was transferred to that animal, and then that animal took their place in being offered as a burnt offering. That's the idea. And, and that's not the only one. There were other times. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, for instance, the priest had to put his hands on the scapegoat. Remember, there were two goats involved, one that was actually killed and then one that was a scapegoat. My dad used to use that term all, all the time when I was growing up, a scapegoat. I never knew what it was in the book of Leviticus till later. But, um, uh, but the scapegoat, the priest would put his hands on the head of that scapegoat and confess the sins of the people. And then that, that goat was taken out by a, I think it's in, a fit man, it says, taken out into the wilderness somewhere isolated, away from everybody, and he was let loose. But the idea was he was the scapegoat. In other words, he took the blame. But it was all involved in, they laid their hands on him, and it was a matter of identifying with that, okay? But that, that's the idea of what in Hebrews 6, all right, the laying on of hands. It's not the same thing as like you see in the book of Acts where the apostles laid hands on somebody and not the same thing. As I said, everything that's talked about here is an Old Testament idea. It's not anything from Christianity or anything you see in the New Testament, all right? It's Old Testament. And keep that in mind as you look at the bigger picture of this warning. All right, of the doctrines of baptisms, the laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead. The Old Testament introduced the idea of resurrection. Job, which is considered by most Bible students to be the oldest book in the Bible, uh, Job 19 speaks of the resurrection. Job said he knew he was going to stand before God in his body one day. I mean, how do you know that? Well, God showed it to him somehow, right? But a resurrection. Many of the psalms, I say many, a number of the psalms talk about resurrection. Now, there's not a whole lot of details about it, that's for sure. And when, the, you know, the Jews in Jesus' day, like Martha, for instance, when Lazarus, when, when Lazarus, her brother, died, remember, Jesus delayed time before he came. And he was doing it, he told the disciples, so that they could see the glory of God. He could have come right away and kept... As Mary said, if he would have come, he wouldn't have had to die. That is true. I mean, Jesus could have kept him from dying. He, could, he wouldn't have to even come to keep him from dying, okay? But he delayed for a reason, because he wanted them to see something. He wanted them, you know, to learn something. And when he talks to Martha, he says, do you believe that he can rise again? He wasn't talking about the future resurrection. He was talking about, do you think I can raise him from the dead? But yet... 
Martha said, yeah, I know, Lord, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna rise in the resurrection. So they knew there was a resurrection. They just didn't know all the details of it. In the New Testament, we have a lot of details about the resurrection. In fact, it's not just a big general resurrection. All right, there's two kinds of resurrection. Resurrection unto life, resurrection unto death. And the first one, the resurrection unto life, happens in numerous stages, actually, for different people. All right? But two kinds of resurrection. All right? but, but, but everybody will be resurrected. But some will be resurrected to life, some to death. Anyway, again, the principles. Resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. And then of eternal judgment. The Bible in the Old Testament lays, lays down the, uh, the principle of eternal judgment. All the details of it may or may not have been revealed there. We have a lot more revealed in the New Testament. Same thing's true with everything in the New Testament. It builds upon what the Old Testament introduced and goes into a lot more detail. All right? And so when, he, when he's talking here about these things, we need to leave these things. He's talking to Jews who are wavering about Christ, right? And he's saying, we need to leave this behind. And when he says we, it's a literary we. He's not including himself because obviously he had come to Christ, okay? But these need to be left behind, all right? It's not that they were, that we just say they were nothing to him, no. But they were foundational to what now Christ has done and built upon. It's not just a foundation. Now there's a house. In fact, with Christ, it's, it's not just a, it's a fully furnished house, all right? Everything that's needed is there. Um, but that's the idea. And then verse 3, he says, and I, I'm stopping, he says, and this will we do if God permit. All right? Now, he personally had already done that. But he's exhorting them, let's do this. All right? Uh, and it's not that God wasn't wanting it. You know, it was wishy-washy whether God would. No. But it's kind of like what we say, you know, if God wills or something. God does desire for them to leave that behind and come on. It's really up to them. And that's why he started it out by saying they were lazy of hearing. Just like it's interesting because how many times does Jesus use that term in parables? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Book of Revelation, all seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation have a phrase toward the end of them that say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. It's a, it's a New Testament theme. Listen up, pay attention to what God says, because it's serious. And that's the same idea here. Now, all of that is, in this warning, is foundational to the next several verses, okay? Which we don't have time to get into right now. We'll, Lord willing, get into that next time, about the, the falling away and, and that kind of stuff. Okay, so we'll get back to that. But uh, until then, read it and keep reading it. All right, um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for, again, your word and this time in it. We just pray you'd help us and uh, help us to obviously consider, be committed to the seriousness of salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.